Our reading for today is 1 John 5, 6 through 21. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Stephanie, and thanks be to God for his word. Well, good morning. Um, I'm Trey. I used to be the next-gen pastor. Now I'm the family pastor. So I was the youth guy, now I'm the family guy, but don't call me Peter, Okay landed better later earlier <laughs> it's all right you'll notice that uh when you go into family ministries you can only make dad jokes so uh <clears throat> well uh, a couple things before we jump in first is this if you were here last week we were talking about financial peace university we genuinely to our core believe that god has called us to steward well the things he gives to us there's been multiple parables multiple times that god has said take care of the things i've invested in you and given you talents and Uh, One of those things is finances. We've had multiple people who've already gone through Financial Peace University. This is going to be a Wednesday night class that we bring up soon. We've had multiple people who've gone through that. And multiple people came back and said, since we're doing this, I would love to help someone get through this financially if that's the only thing keeping them from doing it. We have people in our church who have been through it and think it's so important that we go through uh, some practical steps of how to steward the money that God's blessed us with well 
that we want to remove any barriers that would keep you from doing that. So if, if it's the 75, I think it's 75, if it's $75, that's too much. We had multiple people in our congregation come through and say, I've been through this. I would love to help people pay for this. So don't let money keep you from doing this, uh, which is ironic. It's about money. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Also, since I'm the family ministry guy now, I, we've hired a new youth dude, and uh, he's, I'm going to introduce him to some of the parents on Tuesday, the 29th, which is this Tuesday. We're going to be at one of the parents' houses. If you want to be there, if you have a student who's 6th grade through 12th grade and you're a parent, please email me an RSVP so that I can get you the address and the details. I want you there. I want to talk about how we can partner uh, together to disciple our students well. Like, this discipleship starts in the home with dad and mom, and the church partners with them. We don't do it in lieu of you. We partner with you to disciple students, and we, I want you there. So we'll, we'll be there. That'll be this Tuesday night. Please email me if, you, if you're a parent of a 6th uh, grader to 12th grader. Um, well, let me pray, uh, and we'll jump. Did I miss any? I didn't miss anything, I don't think. Yeah, no, good, okay. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, uh, we get to gather uh, and worship you, uh, not just in song and in prayer and in remembering the cross by taking the elements, but also um, in feasting on your word. So, Lord, as you give your word to your people, I pray you'd help me get out of the way. I pray that um, you would speak to your people. I pray you would soften our hearts as the song that we were singing. Um, And, Lord, I do pray that you would remove any distraction or anything that would keep us from... uh, chewing well on the things that you have for us. And God, I pray that we would meditate on on these things as we go into the week and that it would change the confidence that we have in our prayer and in the way that we uh, view you. Lord, we love you. Help me to not treat any of this excellent matter in a defective way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, uh, Frank walked us through uh, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. And if you remember, we talked about how if you are born of God, you obey God. Like, you can't separate those things. And, and God's commands are not burdensome to you. And we also talked about how obeying God is loving people. And if you want to hear more I, and you haven't heard it, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on our, on our podcast thing on, on YouTube. Um, and today we're going to pick up. Now, um, if you are new to the Bible, you'll notice that there's a bunch of numbers in it. There's big numbers and there's tiny little numbers. The big numbers are chapter marks and the tiny numbers are verse marks. And if... You're like, why is that there? The authors are so weird. How did all 40 of these authors come together? Well, if you're new to the Bible, you probably didn't know there's 40 different writers. But there's one author, and that's uh, the Holy Spirit. And the numbers were not a part of the original text. In fact, most of the New Testament was written in all caps, and it's all like, like just lines of letters. So we had to figure out which words were separate. But the point, why am I bringing this up? Because sometimes, if you hear us talking about it, you'll see the verses like cut up like statements. And it was meant to be written as a letter. And you'll see that some of these numbers are like oddly placed. And then sometimes you'll see, man, they nailed it on the head. That chapter marking, this is one of those times, was a full, complete thought. And you'll notice as we go through today that 1 John 5 starts with a section on those born of God. And it ends with a digression into those born of God. So um, whoever marked this, John gave them a softball because there's like two things on the front and the end, but they did well. 
So as we look at First John, we have to also keep in mind last week's sermon and the text of that those who are born of God obey God and you cannot separate that. It's not burdensome. You, you cannot be satisfied in life if you're born of God unless you obey God. You will, you will never be satisfied. We'll get more into that. So go ahead, open up your Bibles. First John 5 is where we're going to be. Um, we're going to read out of, uh, we're going to start in verse 6. First John 5, we're going to start in verse 6. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. We're going to come back to that. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Keep in your minds throughout this whole sermon when it says Spirit is truth, okay? Because we're going to refer back to that and then it'll make sense later. But uh, for now, let's take a moment and talk about this. Water, blood, and spirit. Interesting three things. Now, if you, if you look back at the Old Testament, you'll notice that the law of, of the Jewish customs was that you, if you were going to bring up an accusation against someone or you were going to defend someone, you had to have two to three witnesses. And so John's like, I'll give you three. Uh, and he says, water, blood, and spirit. What is that about? Well, what's interesting is John is writing 1 John to believers to help them understand that they are in the truth, but then there are these other people who came from the church and are also not of the church that are, that are saying they're Christians, but they're not. It's a lot like today. There are people who are saying they're Christians, but are teaching things contrary to what is actually true. And what they were teaching was, uh, they're, called, uh, they're called Gnostics, not Gnostics, but Gnostics. And uh, they, we get that word from Gnosis, which is a Greek word. I'll, I'll touch on that later. But the Gnostics believed that the good was only the spiritual realm. God himself would never put on flesh and actually be human because creation and, and um, material is evil. They were teaching wrong things. Here's the thing. Jesus did come in the flesh. And John, if you remember, was the only disciple who stuck with Jesus and was there to watch him get crucified. And do you remember what it says after they pierced him in the side? That he bled both water and blood? A little t- I'm sure many of you are like medical folk, and I'll keep it not too gruesome because I, I was a paramedic. I still am technically, but I just I don't do anything with it. But I used to be. And uh, one of the things they teach you is that in blood, you have multiple things going on. You have red blood cells, which are red, ironically. And then you have plasma, which looks kind of like water. And as your blood is pumping, the nurses in the room are nodding, as your blood is pumping, it mixes it up. But if, if you let it settle, the blood cells and the plasma separate. And so then if you're dead and the blood's not pumping and you get stabbed, you're going to see a separation. Between that, you'll see water and blood. That makes sense, right? Maybe he's saying Jesus was real and he really was crucified. Many scholars actually think that's what this is talking about. I actually don't think that's what this is talking about. It could be that, but the point remains the same. I think it's talking about the water, the blood, and the spirit being Christ's coming in three different ways. He came in the flesh through the water of birth or through the water of of baptism. His perfect life, ministry, um, and preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, that testifies to who Jesus was. And then the blood, he took it to the cross and he came for us to, to bear our burden. So then he comes in the water, he comes in the blood on the cross to, to give us eternal life with him when we repent and believe in the gospel. And then the spirit comes at Pentecost. 
And this testifies that God gives him of himself to reside in you, his people, who are, a, who are royal priesthood to this world. That he would work and do magnificent things in you. So regardless of where that stands, here's the point. The water, the blood, and the spirit, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and sending of the spirit confirms to us that we have eternal life in him. That's what we need to know. And the testimony of God is better than the testimony of men. We're going to read about that right now. Uh, Let's move on into uh, verse 9. It says this, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Testimony in himself. That language is intentional. It's not just a random preposition. It's in himself. We're going to know that this testimony that the Spirit talks of, this knowing is deeper than just knowing facts or knowing about. But uh, as he goes on, he makes a point to say that the Spirit is truth. And to not believe his testimony makes you a liar. I don't know if any of you, did anybody uh, grow up in like a Christian school? Anybody? A couple? Okay, I did. Um, don't hold it against me, okay? But I grew up in a Christian school, and my seventh grade Bible teacher, I won't say his name because it's not the greatest compliment I'm giving, but my seventh grade Bible teacher, and you can imagine being a Bible teacher to like seventh graders, which if you knew me when I was in seventh grade, you would have not liked me, I can almost guarantee. But um, I had so much energy, I'm sure you can't tell. And uh, as, as he was teaching in uh, Romans 21.8, he would regularly sing this song. And he would talk about liars going to hell. He would say, Revelation, Revelation, 21.8, 21.8, liars go to hell, liars go to hell, burn, 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 burn. Just ridiculous. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if this is the thing we should be singing in seventh grade Bible class. <laughs> like, there's all these wonderful songs. <laughs> Father Abraham. No. <laughs> Revelation, right? He was super intense on it. And he wouldn't just say it, like, calmly or mildly. Like, he would burn, 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 right? He's a seventh grade Bible teacher. Well, <laughs> the truth of this church is this. It is true. If you read Revelation 21, it says, liars do not enter the kingdom of God. Liars will be an eternal conscious death. But the thing here is that it's not just saying false things that makes you a liar. It's also believing false things or not believing true things. Let's take a moment and, and think on that. Us not believing the testimony of the Spirit makes you a liar. And Revelation 21.8 is referring back to this. Notice Revelation was written by John. Liars do not go to heaven. They do not live in eternity with God. So if this is you and me, we should take it very seriously not to be believing in false things, not believing true things, or speaking false things. We should take that seriously. But also, more specifically, the testimony of the Spirit. Let's move on to verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Eternal life is found through faith, 
through, great, through faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. If you've come to any of our midweek classes on Wednesday, the past two weeks, and then this upcoming week, we've been going through the ordinances, and it has been explosive, by the way. Our last one, come on, people, that was good. You can't laugh now. Gosh, that was, I mean, I stole it from Frank, and he used it already, so you guys are like, this is old news, it's fine. Um, so on our Wednesday night class, we've been going through the ordinances, which are, are, are Jesus-ordained practices, and the reason we use the word ordinance is to separate it from the word sacrament, because they're the church for a long time taught that there were seven sacraments and that you received grace through them. We don't believe that, okay? We believe that grace comes only through faith alone in Christ alone. Do you hear me? We do not believe that you receive grace from anything other than God's gift. Gift Grace is an unmerited favor, so you can't do something to receive it. So that's part of what the class we're doing. We're ending it on communion if you want to come and check it out. But main thing here is that Eternal life is found through faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Okay? And this is all about Jesus. You'll notice every week that we get together, and then every week that we take communion, and every time we see somebody get baptized, what we're pointing to is the cross. We do not graduate from the cross. You do not graduate from the gospel. As you mature in the faith, you just get deeper into what the gospel means. You do not graduate from the truth of what Christ has done for us. We merely look to Christ. That's what we do. This is the prayer of the king in the Old Testament when he's like, I don't know what to do, but Lord, my eyes are on you. This, this is how we operate. So as we look to the cross through preaching of the word, through communion and through baptism, right now I'm bringing it up again that it is always about Christ. The moment you think it's about just doing this or not doing that, you're wrong. It's always about Christ. So as we look to Christ, and as we see that um, eternal life is found in Christ alone, we also have to remember that the alternative is eternal conscious punishment. A lot of times people just want to doctor this up and say, no, this doesn't happen. Scripture is pretty clear that there's two destinations for us um, when Jesus returns. And so then we must take it with extreme seriousness when we talk about eternity and having a perspective of eternity rather than just a few years, this kind of, I guess you could say it's, yes, it's um, temporary, but it's interim. So you can't be focusing on fixing things here. We look to the cross. I don't know if I belabored that. I think the horse is dead. Let's move on. All righty, verse 13. Now, now, before we jump into verse 13, sorry, I said verse 13, but this is the verse that has encapsulated all of First John. So, as we, so th- what's neat is when we read books, we're like, okay, what was the purpose of the author? He d- we don't have to wonder. The author tells us. He says, I've wrote, I wrote these things for this. What's neat is this whole time that we've been going through this, we're wondering, what is this book about? It's about assurance. So that you would know. Let's look at this. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe, to you who believe. So this is written to Christians. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the purpose of the whole book. And this affects the way that we pray. This affects the way that we see God. So if you were to take a moment and think to yourself, the face of God, you and him are alone in a, in a room. What face does he have when he sees you? Is it the face of an angry parent? Is it the face of someone who's apathetic and doesn't really love you deeply? Or is it the face of a warm and gentle 
and lowly, loving Father. The way that you have assurance affects the way that you view God and then affects your prayer life. So it matters that you have assurance because if we've been put here to do the mission of God, which is to make disciples, every Christian, not just the people who are clergy or fancy word for pastors and stuff, all of us in Christ are meant to make disciples. We're all evangelists, all of us. You don't get out of this one. Jesus said, go make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to deserve all that I have taught you. This is the end of Matthew 28. So keep in mind that as we are looking at Jesus doing his work for us and then pastors doing this stuff, we are all going at this with a, with a mindset of making disciples. Eternal, mind, eternal perspective here. Eternal perspective. Um, and, it, and for us to do that well, we need to have assurance. Can you imagine walking in to a coffee shop or a restaurant with the assurance that we have eternal life? You're not thinking, how am I going to be viewed in the next five minutes? You might be a little weird enough to say, hey, is there anything I could be praying over you for? Or the waitress comes and drops off your food and you say, excuse me, we're about to pray. Can I, can I pray for you? Or they, I mean, I've done this and people are like, yeah, and I've done this. And people are like, uh, no, and it's super awkward and it's totally fine. But in that moment, are we praying, as we think of the, thank you God for this meal and those who prepared it, are we also thinking of the people who gave it? Are we concerned about eternity, not just for us, but for them? So as we look to the cross and we don't graduate from the gospel, we're also looking at how we might share that. If we want to give people, if we want to love people well, we have to give them the best thing that we have, which is Christ. And none of us get out of that mission. And if we want to do that mission well, we have to have assurance that we have eternal life. Otherwise, we're living in a temporary life. We're not living in this eternal life that starts now. We're not waiting for eternal life. When you come to Christ, you're alive today. So he wrote these things to believers so that they would know that they have eternal life. And then it goes on. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. Again, your confidence affects your prayer life, your confidence and assurance in your salvation, in your eternal life. And we know that he hears us. But it also makes a very clear distinction. Look back at verse um, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will. According to his will. This isn't like, God, get me a new Escalade. God, get me some more zeros in my bank account. God, help me get past this final. Maybe it is that. But the Lord's will for you, he gives to you in his word. You're never having to wonder, right? This, this is God's will for you that you would be sanctified. Or how about 1 Thessalonians? Uh, be joyful always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Um, oh, I'm missing one. Pray without ceasing. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We don't have to wonder what God's will for us. He's given it to us. So then we have to think. Prayer is not changing God to do the things that we want him to do. Instead, it's to align our heart. Look at what John Stott writes about this. He says, The purpose of prayer is emphatically not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. Prayer is about sinking ourselves with God that we would ask the things that he's wanting us to ask him for. And if we are thinking about life less than this eternal perspective, we're not asking the things according to God's will. God cares about the eternal things that he has for us. So as we, as we read this, as we go into what is it that God has for us, what is his will? Because I would love to pray his will. 
The way that you have assurance affects how boldly you pray. Scripture commands us to pray in expectation, boldly. Or you read through Hebrews and let's draw near in confidence. We get to look at our Father as if He's our loving Father, not this guy who doesn't love us, but the one who has bought us with His own blood. This is a deeper understanding. This is, see, the, the understanding of the gospel just gets deeper. It's not that we graduate from it. Let's move on to verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John, you did it again. Totally clear. Is anybody else, this is really, this is kind of hard to read, right? Why are you telling me not to pray for something? Or why are you saying that that's not what you're talking about? And then what does it mean? I thought uh, Romans 6.23 was clear that the wages of sin is death. How is there sin that doesn't lead to death? Okay, let's contextualize this. John is writing to Christians. Do you guys sin? Do you know sin? Let's look back. Flip one page to the left if you have a normal Bible. If you have a study Bible, it's probably like 10 pages to the left. Go to uh, chapter 1, 1 John Go to verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Okay, so you can't walk in darkness or in sin and, and say that you actually have fellowship with God. Okay, we know that. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin, but it means you struggle well with sin. Christians are not perfect because Christ was perfect, and that's what we need. His work is finished. You being bought for salvation and being sanctified to look more like him still happens, but it's, the work is finished. We just haven't fully realized it yet. But if you've been made a new creation, you cannot go on sinning without being incredibly uncomfortable. You will feel convicted of your sin if this, the testimony of the Spirit is in you. And when the, Spirit of the tes- when the Spirit's testimony is in you, you're repentant. So you struggle well with sin. You struggle in community with sin. You confess your sins. And this is such a sweet, sweet promise. And the Lord is faithful and just and forgives us our sins. So if you're in Christ, Romans 8, 1... Memorize this. Never forget this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is sin that doesn't lead to death for Christians. If you're not a Christian, what does that mean? What is this sin that leads to death? Because there is a sin that leads to eternal death, which is what this is talking about. If you want, um, you can, I'm going to read it for you, but I'm going to flip to Mark 3. And when you read, uh, like, the Gospels or Acts these are our narratives. And when you read a narrative, you want to see how things develop. So you can't just read it, for, like take one verse out. You want to read the, the story. And many of us know that Jesus spoke and taught in parables. But in the book of Mark, he doesn't start speaking in parables until after one event. And then he starts speaking in parables. This is what happens in Mark 3. I'm going to start in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... 
Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. This is the first time that he starts talking. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And a house divided against, its, against itself, and a house is divided, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and, div- and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. After this, it doesn't say that they repented and they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. You're right, Jesus. You must be God. They don't do that. They don't care about what's logical and right. They won't believe because they won't believe and they'll come up with whatever way that they can make it not true that Jesus is who he says he is. And then Jesus says, God says, fine, whatever you wish. This is what he says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. When you don't believe the testimony of the Spirit, that Jesus is the eternal and true God, you commit blasphemy against the Spirit, an eternal sin. So what is this sin that leads to death? Unbelief. Unbelief. And then Jesus says, fine, I'll give you what you want, as you wish. And then you get parables, and you won't believe. You won't get it. This is the scariest thing that can happen to you in your life. When God says, fine, as you wish. Or if you go to Burger King, have it your way. This is the scariest thing that you can ever come to. If you, in your sin, lose conviction, God is giving you over to your sin. That should scare you because this is happening. You should feel the conviction and thank God. Uh, John 16 talks about the, the Spirit's job, like what He does, and He reveals the truth, convicts of sin, but always elevates the Son. He always glorifies Jesus' name. When you feel that conviction, it's God's grace and mercy to you. It's uncomfortable, but it is good because it calls you back to God, which is the best thing for you. If you lose conviction because you're so just set in your way and you want that sin, God will say the scary words, fine, as you wish. You want to leave your spouse? Fine, as you wish. Justify it however you want. You want to hold on to that bitterness and not actually do the hard work of forgiving? When I told you I won't forgive you if you don't forgive, fine, as you wish. You want to continue driving like a dingus? Fine, as you wish. The last, Tom Schrader, who was Frank's mentor, used to say that the last part of your body to be sanctified is your right foot. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I don't know if you know this. I'm a huge NASCAR guy, so I'm always just making car sounds. My car makes it, but I'm making the... Anyway... Many of us know we're repentant drivers, not perfect drivers, okay? But the scariest part of life is when God says, fine, as you wish. Take a moment this week and throughout this week to be thinking to yourself, what is it I'm clinging to? What is the sin that I'm holding close to my chest and burning my clothes with? Because God only disciplines those whom he loves.
So in that, we say, God, I don't care how bad it hurts. I don't care how hard it is. Give me humility because you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. God, I don't care how bad or how hard it is. Remove from me this sin, even if it's like cutting off a hand or a foot, because I know it's even better to be in your presence. So this week, as we think about that, let's continue to remind ourselves we want the convictions of the Spirit and we want to heed those and we'd be quick to repent, quick to confess, quick to walk with that, with community in the midst of that. Let's move forward and go into John 18. First John uh, 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, see, how, see that again? Now he's closing. He's again in his digression. He's closing. And we know that everyone has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He can't. He's a new creation. We know this. Look at the fruit. If he's truly with Christ, he cannot be content keeping in his sin. The genuine Christian hates sin, but he who was born of God protects him. That's Jesus. Jesus protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. This is a sweet promise as well. A couple weeks ago, if you didn't hear it, you should definitely listen to it. Uh, Tyler James, Pastor Tyler James gave the sermon on uh, that was uh, on testing the spirits and on the, the war that wages in the spiritual realm that we don't see. The truth is, there's a lot going on that we don't know. There's a lot going on in the spiritual realm. And many of us just want to put that out of our mind because we don't, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And we don't put on the armor of God. This is what our kids went through this, last, uh, this week, are going through the armor of God, Ephesians 6. So if you're a parent, train your kids up to know this. And Isaiah, who's teaching, is getting to the point of saying, he's so wise. He goes, he's with Ben and he's working with us and he says, the armor of God is Jesus. The breastplate of righteousness, who is the person of righteousness? Jesus. The belt of truth, who is truth? Jesus. Jesus is your armor. Those who do not go on sinning have Christ armoring them. The enemy does not touch them. Can you imagine going into battle knowing that you'll never get shot? You would be raising like craziness. You would be going ham out there. Because you, you would be impenetrable. That's confidence. That's what we're talking about. That's the assurance. The enemy cannot touch you. And you, some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of you know the spiritual warfare that's happening in your life right now. The enemy cannot touch you. You need to know the authority you have in Christ. Get rid of that. I'm going to read you a, a little story. There's a guy who gave a sermon. His name is Pastor Carl Mann II. And he's talking about this man named, I love this name, Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was an evangelist. This guy was a serious evangelist, would pray over people, was like convinced people, everyone should be prayed over for healing. We've seen people healed in our church from, from just prayer and prayer and prayer and that God's moving. It's, God wants to give you the things according to his will. Sometimes he doesn't lead to that healing. Just as Paul says, uh, I prayed three times, the Lord would remove this thorn in my side, but he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. There are times that the Lord will give us a disease of the body to heal us of the disease of the spirit. We know that. But there are times when God wants to move. So this guy believed that. He's like, everybody should. So he, he has this time. So Pastor Carl talks about Smith Wigglesworth. He says he spent approximately 36 hours in continuous preaching and praying in one meeting. 36 hours. There's stories of, of uh, the people who did his like, autopsy or whatever when he died that he had, was missing parts of his kneecaps. 
because he knelt so much. I don't know how true that is. I mean, nurses tell me if that can happen. I've never, I don't kneel that much, but oh my goodness. So this guy is legit in his prayer and preaching. So 36 hours. Because of this, he was physically exhausted and sent everyone home for a few hours so he could get some rest. He went to bed and fell asleep quickly. Approximately 30 minutes after he had fallen into a very deep sleep, he was awakened by the sensation of someone shaking his bed. He opened his eyes and he saw an evil spirit that had manifested itself seating on the foot of his bed. And after he cleared his eyes, it is reported that he said, oh, it's only you. Smith Wigglesworth rolled over and immediately went back to sleep. I don't know how genuine that story is, but that is that is. The distance that our heart should be towards the enemy. That's how we should view it. The enemy cannot touch you. But the moment you forget or the moment that you're stuck in your conviction and you lose it, you lose that conviction because you just want to go into your sin. Notice the verse saying, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's connected to. So it's that you're struggling well with sin. You're close to the Lord. Don't Don't shut up the voice of the Spirit trying to tell you to turn away from that sin. Be reminded that this week as you're thinking, Lord, what is the things you want me to lay at your feet? But the enemy cannot touch you. Verse uh, 19, And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Notice that. The one who is in you, though, has overcome the one who is in the world. Verse 20, And we know... That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He has given us this understanding. So there's two words that are used in this passage for know. When he says, and we know the Son of God has come. When he says, we know that we are from God. When he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God... When he says, uh, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the requests of him. As it goes on, it continues to say, and we know, and we know, and we know. It always uses this word in Greek called oida, which we understand it. You perceive it. And then he changes it when he says it in verse 20. He says, and we know, oida, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know gnosko, him. That we may know him. That gnosko is a deeper meaning of knowing. It's an intimate knowing. It's, a, it's a, this spirit is in you and you in him. Not just do you know about him, do you know him? Ironically, the people John's writing to protect against are called the Gnostics. Got that word from gnosko. John is picking them apart. No, we know the truth and it's not that garbage. It is Christ. Do you know him? Is the spirit? Is it is the testimony of the spirit in you? Do you struggle well with sin? What's also neat is we get to see a clear picture of the Trinity here. This is if you so many people might sit here and be like, yeah, well, the word Trinity was never in the Bible, and you're right. In fact, the word Trinity didn't come until a couple hundred years later, and you're right. But these people who God revealed Himself to to reveal Himself to us in the Word in the Scriptures, like John and Paul. They did know that God was a triune God. Paul says the Spirit is the truth. Then he says the Son is the truth and he is the eternal true God. He's telling you right to you 
God is the triune God. And Jesus is the eternal Son. And when we claim His name, we have eternal life. And no one can take that from you. And then he ends it with this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just out of nowhere. (laughs) There's like no talk of idolatry. But if we know what idolatry is, it's putting anything else on the worship seat of our heart. And so he's he's like, why why does he say keep yourselves from idols to end? Well, we've talked about this. Uh, Luke Simmons, who's one of the pastors at Gateway, Redemption Gateway, he said it this way, that when you're born of God, old, you obey God, you love, and you have the right doctrine. And part of that is also not putting anything else on the idle seat of your heart. God alone. This is the first two great commandments, right? So then, if you do that, it would rob you of your assurance in God and in your eternal life. And that's just worse for you. And it's just always good. I don't know if you tell your children. It's kind of like when you tell your kid, I have a three-year-old, when I t- <laughs> don't do that thing again. Just don't do that thing again. It's kind of like a father again. Little children, my dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So as you go into the week, this is what I want you to be thinking of. First, I want us to know, when when, uh, Jesus in Matthew 11 says that all who come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden, he says, come to me and I will give you a challenge. No. (laughs) He does not say a challenge. He says rest. My challenge for you is to find that rest in the Lord. And anything else that's stealing that rest from you, that should be in the Lord, that's keeping you from the abundant life that Christ has for you, I want you to meditate on this this week. What is it I could lay at the feet of Christ? What is it he wanted me to leave from? If we believe with all of our heart that we have eternal life in Christ, the way we live, the way we live confidently and boldly, it looks different than those who don't have that assurance. Shed the clothes, the old clothes, and put on the Spirit. Put on the new clothes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we gather uh, to worship you as your people, and you died for your bride, which is us, and we thank you for that. And you've given us assurance in the eternal life that we have in you. And Lord, if we got heaven today, but you weren't there, it would be hell. We know that it's always knowing you is the ultimate end of man. We want to know you. Gnosko, we want to deeply know you. And God, that doesn't start when we die. That starts now. Lord, I pray we would be encouraged and comforted and cared for in that. I pray as we go into this week that you would be shaping and molding us more into the image of your son. That we would be shedding the things that keep us from worshiping you with all of our heart. To have the boldness and the assurance that you would send us to be a light in the world. We wouldn't put a a bushel over the light you've given us, but shine bright in the darkness. Even if that means that the world's going to hate us because we're not of the world. And the world didn't, didn't love you. So how could we think it would love us? Lord, give us that boldness. Um, and God, I pray that you would continue to protect us from the enemy. I pray for our children in our, in our church as well, that they would be raised and cared for in a way to know how wonderful it is to walk with you, the abundant life that comes from you, the love that comes from you, um, and that they too would be protected from the evil one, Lord. In Jesus' name.